0: Hello and welcome to My Roots Are Showing with myself, Nadina Regan. This is the podcast where we talk to well-known people about their lives and about what has made them who they are today. It's about their inspirations, their backgrounds and their ambitions. It's also hopefully sometimes about the things that they weren't intending to reveal, but wound up saying anyway. Thank you so much to all the people who've been in touch about the Graham Norton podcast, our last podcast actually, which uh, got amazing feedback. It even got a little review in the Irish Independent. Oh, I was delighted. <laughs> never has one person been so happy about a review I'd say Um, but uh, yeah that and a few other lovely mentions besides on RT and elsewhere so definitely very very happy I know Oscar Wilde I think it was said that you shouldn't read your reviews you shouldn't measure them but you know something when you have a podcast when you don't have a marketing budget it is a lovely lovely thing for people to take notice and yeah so it's hugely appreciated and as always at around this point in the podcast i will say uh it is an independent podcast if you would like if you like it if you're enjoying it then please do consider giving it a little review yourself on itunes or even telling a friend about it now i hope you've been having a good month since last we connected via this particular portal on the internet i certainly had a great month for myself went to my very last festival of the summer electric picnic always the one to close out the year i uh, found myself camping as I want to do at summer festivals and as always going to Electric Picnic I find myself thinking is this going to be the last year, the last year that you're going to be able to do this, the last year that you're going to be able to tough it out as we all get older and you know the way yourself, you're in the wellies, it's raining, you're thinking to yourself like is it all worth it, would I be better off at home but actually this year was Completely brilliant. One of the best years I've ever been to the festival, and I've been to a lot of years at the festival. Billie Eilish was amazing. The 1975, absolutely amazing. And just a general really good crowd. Uh, One of the things I really liked, though, as well, about the festival is that it's changing shape slightly over the past few years. And there is kind of a whole other contingent. Uh, The podcast area at Minefield has really taken off um, in recent years. And there's just kind of a feeling, as well, I think, that. You know, I think we went through a phase for a while where festivals were all about the youth the youth the youth and don't get me wrong electric picnic is still very much about people in their early 20s having an absolute ball but it's nice to feel as well that the festival has these corners whether it's uh jerry fish or whether it's uh the minefield area or the salty dog or body and soul that uh, there are people who might not be in their first blush of youth uh, but who are also really really enjoying themselves and actually as i go on in life um I'm still obviously very young, Um, I, I find myself thinking, you know, you don't have to define yourself by your age, you can just define yourself by your interests and by what you love in life and you shouldn't have to put away these things just because you've hit a certain set of digits. With that in mind, it's somewhat by way of introducing my next guest, perhaps an unexpected guest to the podcast because we're more usually directly connected to the world of arts and entertainment but this time I'm delighted to say that my guest on the podcast is Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue. Now I don't need to tell you that the Minister is having a very busy year. Brexit, Boris, the budget, these are unsettling, fraught times in Ireland and abroad And we talked about those issues as part of the podcast, which was conducted in the Department of Finance in Dublin recently. But politicians are also still people. And Pascal Donahue is particularly interesting to me because of his passions outside of the world of politics. He loves books. He loves music. And he's not telling fibs about any of this. It is not a pose. He reviews books for the Irish Times and the Sunday Business Post. He speaks about music with great depth and passion. So we talked about those things too, often jumping from the world of the arts to the world of politics and back again. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you do too. You can let me know what you think, by the way, via Twitter at Nadina Regan or via my show page on Twitter at My Roots Are Show. Right, let's proceed. This is Pascal Donahue's My Roots Are Showing. Minister Pascal Donoghue, you are very welcome to My Roots Are Showing. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you?
1: Nadine, I'm great. It's great to be on your podcast. I've uh, listened to so many of them. And to be in the esteemed company of people like Graeme Norton and Kevin Barry is something I'm going to have to work, work hard to live up to now
0: well i have heard rumors that you started out life wanting to be a short story writer or a novelist
1: that's absolutely right i did Uh, in my earlier years uh, what i wanted to be was a writer i was lucky enough to have a few short stories published actually and uh, reading and books are an absolutely essential part of who i am and i really hope later in life to have an opportunity to return to writing Uh, a life on politics certainly fills you up With an awful lot of insights uh, but I'm not sure if it's fiction or non-fiction which would be the best way of talking about them.
0: So are you writing fiction in the quiet times occasionally?
1: Not anymore but I used to uh, so all the way up into being in college I would have written most days and would have written short stories. Uh, I managed to get all the way up to completing a novela uh, which is god knows where it is now But what I do now, uh, which I find really, really valuable, both for my job and for a balance, is I do write a lot of articles um, uh, about books, which I really, really enjoy doing. Uh, And I also really enjoy putting pen to paper, uh, particularly for speeches. I find there is nothing that is uh, more capable of refining a thought or making an argument than sitting down and making it yourself. And having to use a pen or a pencil as a way of delineating and clarifying what you believe about an issue Uh, and I find it a great discipline.
0: Well we'll talk a little bit more about your specific writing in a while but before we do it's worth saying at the outset, these are very tense times for Ireland and for Britain. We're coming into the actually today as we talk, it's back to school and it very much feels like it's back to school for politicians as well with uh, so much turmoil and the serious prospect of a hard Brexit looming. How are you feeling?
1: I think it's really important to put it all in context. Uh, as you said yourself, this is the week uh, schools go back. Uh, I thought myself this morning seeing all the junior infants on their way into primary school for the first time and seeing the first years earlier on this week or at the end of last week turning up into their new secondary schools. And as we look at that part of Irish life uh, uh, beginning to come back into cycle, I think it is important to say that yes, we are facing real risks Yes, we are seeing what happens when there is a change in how politics is done in other democracies. But the challenges that we could have to deal with in the consequence of all of this, I think, should remind us of two things. The first one is that we are really capable of responding back to it. Uh, We're hugely imaginative, uh, very agile and flexible, both people and economy, and we will find a way through this. And secondly, uh, I hope it can remind those of us in public life about the value of politics and how we should conduct ourselves. And I hope it indicates to citizens as well well, that what happens in politics can have huge consequences for your country. And we're seeing that play out now in ways that we would never have thought likely, maybe up to a few years ago.
0: Am I right in thinking that it's your birthday in a few days?
1: It's my birthday in a few weeks, actually, you're correct.
0: And you're gonna turn 44?
1: I'm gonna be turning, would you believe, 45. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs>
0: a year more. Um, did you think that turning 45 that you would be in this office in this position and particularly at a time right now where you know all eyes are on you
1: uh, the short answer is no in two different ways uh, I'm not one of these people that entered into public life with a burning ambition to hold a particular office or role uh, because of my constituency and because of the nature of us Getting elected to Dáil in itself was a a huge personal deal for me and getting re-elected to this day is the single most important thing that has happened to me in public life apart from decisions that I have to make as a minister. And in relation to the second part of your question, did I anticipate times like this? I did anticipate things happening that were going to be really different to the kind of politics of a few years ago. The election of President Trump, the nature of what has happened with Brexit, genuinely means that nearly anything is now happening polit- possible in politics. But even with that caveat, I didn't anticipate that as we approach the end of this year and we move into early 2020, we would still be dealing in this way with the consequences of the referendum of 2016 in the United Kingdom. But I'm up for it. I think Ireland is, it will be ready for us. Um, And I want to kind of give off my best to help our country get through what may happen.
0: When I was waiting for you earlier, um, I was looking around at some of the images on the walls of previous ministers for finance. Michael Collins was there, of course, and so many others, uh, all male. Um, But when you were a boy, were you the person who read widely and thought, this is the dream? I know you studied politics in Trinity, right?
1: Uh, I did, uh, but genuinely it was not my aspiration or ambition then. Uh, and it was only a lot later in life uh, that an ambition to try to do a role like this developed. Uh, when I was in college and when I was in secondary school, I had my mind more towards writing uh, and towards the creative industries.
0: A lot of great writers uh, get their start in writing in life because of a childhood illness, and you suffered from asthma i believe and you weren't the sportiest so did reading come into play as a refuge for you uh,
1: yes it did in some ways and uh, having asthma as a kid and then a young adult uh, did have an important effect on me in a few different ways the first one is regressively it meant that for quite a while i saw sport and uh, team sport in particular has been something that was always for others as opposed to being for me. Um, And uh, I kind of regret that in retrospect now, uh, because a little bit later in life, uh, oddly enough, through being Minister of Sport uh, for uh, two years and then being a member of a local GAA club, Nafina, which has turned out to be really important to me, I've gone to see everything in a completely different life, and particularly as kind of family life kind of got back into sport. But then secondly, on a more positive note, you're correct, uh, because um, playing soccer or playing in my local GAA club, which at the time was uh, St Bridget's, genuinely weren't the options for me. I developed a huge thirst uh, for reading uh, and for reading all kinds of things, uh, and uh, that has stayed with me throughout life. And even as the asthma has thankfully faded... The love for books and reading has probably gone even stronger.
0: What did your report cards say when you were a kid? What was the general feedback?
1: So the general feedback when I was going through primary school then and into secondary school uh, was that I was uh, 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 good at English but I needed to work an awful lot harder at Irish and French Uh, and I'm afraid my limitations in both those areas have stayed with me forever.
0: Would you endorse Irish being removed from the curriculum?
1: So I used to, for a while, think it should be removed actually and it became a subject of uh, political debate there a number of years ago. I've actually changed my mind in relation to it. Um, I do think there is value in, uh, in keeping it in the curriculum in the way we have it at the moment. But there is a but, and the but is I think we should be working far harder, even still, to make sure it's a, uh, taught in an oral language, in an oral way and it's used as a way of conversing with each other. And like even now, Nadine, uh, when I see the homework being done at home and try to help with it, when I see the Tishal Ginnadoc being taught, I just wince and think, you know, what, what, what? Where are we going? I still remember uh, the um, the impenetrability of the grammar of the Tishal Ginnadoc as a teenager, and wonder why are we still inflicting that uh, to uh, on, on young boys and girls. On the other hand, I see the talks. I see the success of the talks at the moment. I see the way the Gael School movement has evolved um, in uh, my own part of Dublin and across the country. And I think surely that's the direction we should try to keep going in.
0: You went to St Declan's in Cabra. Uh, are there any pictures of you now on the wall?
1: There is, there is two pictures of me on the wall, one of which I... Uh, Hope has retreated from the wall now and is in a dusty wardrobe somewhere. Why? But there's one picture of me somewhere uh, uh, looking like I was involved in athletic activity. I think that picture is best left in the uh, in the chambers of time and doesn't, doesn't appear anywhere again. And then there is another picture of me when I started off in Trinity College. And even now when I go into St Eclan's, which I do try to, God, it's the oddest of things to be walking down the corridors there and see a picture of me. At that time, I had a quiff uh, and talk growing a long quiff uh, was uh, the way to go. Uh, That's obviously faded now.
0: Well, you've spoken as well around that time or perhaps slightly later. uh, In addition to the quiff, you also had a a fixation on Transvision Vamp and Wendy James, uh, as you've discussed elsewhere. Uh, You were a bit of a... A music fan as well.
1: I think fixation might be overstating it a little bit, Nadine.
0: Be fair. Every man or boy at that particular time was in love with Wendy James.
1: Well, I was going to make that point now uh, that whatever it was I had in common uh, with lots of other boys and men at that time. And as I commented elsewhere, as you said, amongst my circle, the kind of world was divided into people who either felt very strongly about Robert Smith or Wendy James and for me, Wendy James uh, was a hands down winner uh, and I can still remember uh, the early albums that I bought in the kind of glorious vinyl, Transvision Vamp, uh, Elvis Costello and Led Zeppelin uh, were the, the, the vinyl that I can still see so clearly in my mind.
0: What else did you have in terms of accoutrements? I mean, are there particular style periods that they look back on with a certain amount of concern?
1: Not really, actually. Uh, funnily enough, I was thinking recently that a lot of the music I really enjoyed listening to then, I still listen to now. Um, and that insight has probably worried me a little bit because it makes me think about two different things. The first thing is, surely, surely, I must have heard something over the last 20 years that uh, compares with the music I was listening to then. And thank God I have. But the other more worrying thing is, we have to, surely there has been music over the last 20 years that's better than what was coming out in the late 80s and early 90s. Of course, the answer to that question is absolutely yes. Uh, uh, But the bands I was listening to then and the albums in particular then, I still have uh, both on my playlists and in the kitchen.
0: Well, after you exited your teenage years or around that time, you you moved to England, uh, worked for Procter & Gamble. And one of the things I suppose that, There has been a lot of talk about now, with the success of Derry Girls, putting it very forcibly to the forefront of our minds, but then also, obviously, with the prospect of a hard Brexit, Boris Johnson coming to power and so on, is a feeling by Irish people that actually a lot of people in Britain were not schooled in Irish and British history in the way that we were in Irish schools. And did you become conscious of that when you moved and you began to understand that actually there was a very different perspective at play?
1: it wasn't a big issue for me when i was living in the uk then and while i think it is fair to say that many of the subtleties and nuances uh, and really kind of delicate features of what we've achieved here in ireland i don't think are understood in the way we understand them here in the uk i still think the value of what has happened and the value of the change is understood and is appreciated by people living all over the United Kingdom. But my time living in the UK, and I lived in London, I lived in Newcastle, and I've since kind of been in and worked in lots of other parts of the UK, was really, really important to me personally. I had a great time living there. I have some really good friends there. My personal life is is intertwined with the United Kingdom, as it is with so many other people of my age. But you mentioned Derry Girls, and I watched the first series of a there over the summer. Funnily enough, if I look at the kind of artists who I think are speaking very relevantly about some of the issues you've just raised there, like I look at what Sharon Horgan did in Catastrophe. I look at what Aisling B is doing at the moment now uh, when she's writing about her character and, of course, Sharon Horgan living in London as, um, as Irish women. Uh, like I think they are uh, touching on something and speaking about something that's really relevant now to the experience of being Irish living in the United Kingdom and that's why I feel so strongly uh, that with all that is going on and the kind of change that's happening in the UK we still have to redouble our efforts to maintain the friendship and the new relationship that exists between the UK and Ireland And my views on that come from my time living there.
0: What did you think at the time when, and you would have gone through this in the same way that I did, uh, the... The sort of Spice Girl mania was in full flow and it was Oasis versus Blur and Britpop was a huge thing. And then suddenly we would see the likes of Noel Gallagher arriving on the 10 Downing Street and kind of seeing this intersection between politics and pop music in a way that was potentially quite fruitful but then also potentially damaging, depending on your perspective. What did you think?
1: Well, I was living in the UK when all that happened, the kind of a whole cool Britannia period. And I actually remember the first time I saw Oasis. Is when I was living up in Newcastle um, uh, in the mid '90s, and I saw them play in a very, very, very small club uh, on the outskirts of Newcastle City, and unfortunately, the gig descended into a mild outbreak of a righteous, of of not righteous behaviour, a violent behaviour that ended up with the police being called. Uh, Were you
0: arrested? And,
1: uh, I was neither arrested nor indeed part of the behaviour uh, that caused the gig to be called off. But if you had told me then that the Gallagher brothers would be standing in number 10 down the Street a few years later, I actually would not have believed you. And as I watched the whole cool Britannia thing play out, um, I was, look, I was pretty sceptical of it then. Uh, it did appear to me that it was a new leader who was at the height of his power anyway, Tony Blair, who generated such of a sense of excitement in the UK at that point. He didn't need uh, uh, the Gallagher Brothers beside him and Number 10 to continue at that. I was always more of a Jarvis Cockerman man myself anyway than a Gallagher Brother man.
0: Do you think it's important for musicians to comment politically?
1: Uh, so I think it, I don't know if it is important well look, I don't think it's important to their art because I think that uh, the great glory of art whether it be music, whether it be the written word whether it be the visual arts is that it means something different to each spectator to each viewer, to each reader but I do think we have to have a renewed appreciation of the value of culture um, in public life And one of the things that I'm struck by at the moment is if you look at the sense of fracture that has developed elsewhere and that we always run the risk of here in Ireland as well, that sense is always there, that possibility is always there. I think one of the things that have caused that is the pressure that empathy has come under. The increasing inability to imagine what it is like to walk in the shoes of somebody else. And one of the glories of art is that in addition to many of the other things it can do, it helps you imagine what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes. And how we can look at the springs of empathy and how we can look at how that can be refreshed, I think is a really important question in democracies.
0: Well speaking of art and its capacity to influence it's not a an ordinary piece of art I think you could say but there was a picture taken the other day of a tent on a street and poking out of the tent was a delivery bag and next to the tent chained to the railing was a bike and it was very clear that this was a homeless person working for seemingly that company and still being in the position of not being able to earn a living. I live in Dublin city and over the course of the time that I've been here uh, coming up from Skibbereen originally, I, I've seen the tents spring up along the canal and elsewhere and it's really hard to watch. And you talk about empathy and the capacity of art and artists to create empathy in others. How do you feel when you see images like that? And when you walk past people in those situations?
1: Um, I feel a visceral sense of the need to better support our citizens who find themselves in that situation. And if I look at the, my life within the constituency of Dublin Central, what is a constant reminder to me of the need to do better in supporting uh, uh, those citizens who face that kind of a situation is the plight of young boys and girls who uh, are growing up in a hotel room. Uh, and uh, that is why, in my life as Minister for Finance and Public Expenditure, we have put such effort into trying to make the resources and the policy available to tackle this and to tackle the crisis of homelessness and to make progress in where we are in housing. And there's no more uh, strong reminder of the need to continually to do this than the presence of tents and our keys. Uh, So it is no more acceptable to me than I imagine it is to you. But where we differ is in my ability to do something about it. Uh, And that's what I try to do every day. Uh, I saw that picture myself uh, and it is a reminder to me about how having a job is no longer a guarantee of being able to have the standard of living or the resources uh, to protect you from real sheer and sudden vulnerability.
0: Coming into politics, as you did, um, this is a, a period or a generation where politics has suddenly become very personal, because you have a Twitter account, uh, you have direct access to your critics in a way, and they have direct access to you. Did, you, did that give you pause for thought when you originally uh, became a city councillor back in what, 2004?
1: So if I look at the kind of politics of even 2004, it was really different to where we are now uh, because uh, social media and the uh, huge variety of media, media outlets and presences was very, very different then to where it is now. Uh, and uh, as I look at the way politics is conducted now, uh, I try to kind of conduct it within, within certain parameters. Uh, you've made a kind of interesting point that I have access to my critics and they have access to me. And you're absolutely right to say they have access to me, whether it be, you know, political critics or whether it be critics uh, of what I do kind of in broader public life. But I'd, I don't necessarily use the access that I have back to them. You know, I'm a, you know, I'm appalled at the pressure I can see media being under in other democracies at the moment. Uh, where uh, media and people who are in other forms of public life suddenly become recipients of the kind of uh, focus that I think only politicians should be under. Um, And even though I have many political opponents, I never see them as enemies.
0: You once, in 2016, I don't know if you'll want to be reminded of this, but in a Hot Press interview, you called Boris Johnson a charlatan. That's. A powerful word is there a problem now where it's actually really hard to say something like that it's hard to say well actually that's not true or I disagree because I don't believe that you have to proceed very carefully
1: uh, we do uh, but I don't accept the argument nor never will I that we are living in a post-truth democracy because the moment we concede that argument We move away from the values and we move away from the framework that enables societal, economic and political progress. Uh, It is all too easy to say, and this is a political point that I'm making, that because I live in a post-truth political environment, I'm going to give up trying to challenge that, or I'm going to give up trying to engage with my opponents uh, or people who feel differently about issues like Europe. Uh, I believe truth is objective. Uh, I believe there's enough people there who understand us. And I believe there's enough citizens who understand the difference between a keenly held judgment or a keenly held value and something which is objectively still true. Uh, And uh, people like me have a a duty uh, to call out uh, when we believe something is said that is untrue But we have an equal duty to be willing to be in the fray on it and to be willing to engage in debates on it. And that's something I do. Um, I believe my job boils down to two things. Making decisions and being willing to make the arguments for my decisions. And that's something that I always do, either in the doyle or on the media.
0: Many people would see you as a future Taoiseach. Do you see yourself as a future Taoiseach?
1: No, I don't. Uh, uh, I... I'm where I want to be and I'd love to have the opportunity to do this for as long as I can uh, I do uh, think politics is a really important craft it's a vocation uh, I love the job that I have I want to do it uh, and I particularly want to do it at a point of such tension and change both economically and abroad but I have no ambition to go beyond this point
0: but what if it was thrust upon you
1: uh, look, you know, this is always the what-if. In truth, anybody who ends up across the courtyard from me in uh, the Taoiseach's office, the circumstances might develop in a particular way, but you never end up or you rarely end up becoming Taoiseach because it has been thrust upon you. The, the, the spirit has to be there to do it, the kind of uh, ignition of a different kind of ambition to get there. I'm very lucky to spend a lot of time in the Taoiseach's office, I'm very privileged now to have worked for two different Ishik, And I'm really clear uh, that it's not a role that I want uh, or would aspire to. And I want to do what I'm doing, as I said a moment ago, to the best of my ability.
0: Let's talk a little more about your love of culture, because sometimes I wonder why you're not the Culture Minister. I think you'd certainly rival some of your uh, colleagues in terms of your interest in reading and so on. Donald Ryan is an author that you love. Um, Who else in the Irish fraternity um, do you particularly admire?
1: So many. I think we're having a renaissance in Irish literature at the moment. And I don't think we recognise it enough or value it enough because it's happening across so many different genres. It's so multifaceted. I sometimes wonder if we've missed the trick in recognising the breadth of what is happening. If I look at, for example, you know, kind of contemporary fiction. I'm such a great fan, as you said, of Donal Ryan. I think his writing is genuinely beautiful. Um, I look at writers like Kevin Barry, Belinda McKeown. Uh, uh, I, look at, um, I look at Emily Pine. I thought her essay collection recently was it's amazing. amazing. I thought it was an amazing piece of writing. And you look at a cluster of writers like that and think they're so amazing. And then you look at, for example, what's happening in... In crime fiction, for example, you look at writers like... Asian.
0: Hold up. We have to say, right, crime fiction. Colum Tobin doesn't rate it. He's, uh, he's on record now saying he doesn't rate it. So are you in disagreement?
1: Uh, he's wrong. Uh, and uh, I'm going to have to uh, pick my argument very gingerly uh, to uh, be different, uh, to take a different view to a critic of the uh, esteem of somebody like Column Tobin, let alone a writer like Colm Tobin reason why he's wrong is like literature plays lots of different roles um, and we should never uh, devalue for a moment uh, how important the thrill of sheer enjoyment is uh, and uh, as I said if you look at for example Tana French Tana French his new book uh, The, um, the uh, Witching Elm I think it is The Witch Elm The Witch Elm th- pardon me an amazing novel that came out earlier on in the year like that novel was reviewed by Stephen King in the New York Times. And it was reviewed in that way weeks before mm-hmm. that happened here. Uh, and uh, if you look at what she is doing, if you look at writers like Joe Spain, uh, the success they're having, Adrian McKinty. If, uh, Have you read The Chain? I, I've read The Chain. Everybody else in my family has now read us. I think it is an extraordinary book. But his novels before that, the Sean Duffy series, they're absolutely wonderful. They're great books. I just think if you look across the vista of what's happening in Irish writing at the moment, like Colin Barrett, for example, his first short story collection, Young Skins. God, this guy's in here, such a young writer. And uh, all he's going to go on and achieve, in addition to all the other names we're familiar with, from Sally Rooney and all she is doing, to, to, to writers that appear to be arriving now every day.
0: Well, getting back to your own literary ambitions, people often uh, shy away from writing sex scenes in fiction. There's actually an award for bad sex in fiction. Uh, Some of your uh, peers have strayed a little towards that area uh, with some racy novels from their past. Uh, If you were to write again, would you consider uh, the racy novel?
1: No. No. Uh, and uh, as I said, if I was to write again, uh, I think it would probably be in the uh, the kind of reflections on politics and economics and that kind of thing. Um, I, I think it's fair to say my reflections on the racier aspects of life uh, are unlikely uh, to either hit the written page, let alone the printed page. Uh, I've noticed that that, uh, particularly in my own party, tends to be concentrated. Um, in a uh, constituency on the south side of Dublin. Um, I think it's unlikely to be flowering on the north side of Dublin soon.
0: Uh, how do you balance family life, uh, life as a minister, and then your reading and culture life? Because honestly, I don't know where you get the time.
1: It's really simple that I, every single night before I go to sleep, I read. And I find it uh, a boon then for having a full night's sleep. Uh, and uh, it is. Look, it's such an indelible part of who I am uh, I never go anywhere without a few books being with me and uh, because I actually have to I do a lot of travel for work as well um, I'm always reading there uh, and uh, look I'm, I'm no different than to any other person who's in a busy job who has a family family comes first uh, in terms of your priorities across early in the day and then in the evening and then apart from that you know I work every moment that's available to me
0: How much do you sleep?
1: Enough to get by. uh, by Last night? Um, Five or six hours, I think. Um, Because
0: they say that the most successful people in government are those who can get by on four hours sleep a night.
1: I would disagree with that. The greatest risk in government is being uh, tired and making decisions if you're tired Um, and when things begin to fray. So I have some kind of golden rules about time at the weekend um, and uh, making sure you begin every Monday afresh. Uh, But I am a real believer in a work ethic. Uh, I'm a real believer that the best response to things going absolutely pear-shaped, which can happen uh, uh, quite frequently, uh, is being at your desk uh, first thing the following day and still being there late the following night. And uh, that's what I do. And I'm very lucky to have things in my personal life that sustain me in doing that.
0: I won't keep you too much longer. Um, but um I did want to inquire a little bit about uh you've mentioned you know possibly returning to nonfiction and a life beyond politics. Mm-hmm. But if you were to have a full-time job that wasn't this, what what could it be aside from the novel writing or the fiction or the nonfiction writing?
1: So uh Earlier on in life, it would have been uh, uh, probably it would have been continuing with the work I was doing in business life, and then trying to combine that a little later with uh, uh, some kind of writing. Uh, I mean, like to give an example of us, have you read um, um, Leonard and Hungry Paul?
0: This is the book by is it Mumbling Defrau?
1: Mumbling Defrau, that is exactly it. Now uh, he is for any of your lis- listeners who haven't read us it is a gorgeous novel um, about uh uh, two men who are a little bit kind of socially introverted and for whom the most important thing in their lives is their family and the friendship that they have with each other and then one of them meets a woman and everything that happens from there that was written by somebody uh, who i know who was uh, in the irish civil service who used to work for me who combined writing that novel with doing a demanding job in the Department of Finance. And that appears to me to be the best possible life outside of what I'm trying to do at the moment, life post politics. um, I'm not one of these people that kind of wants to get out of politics soon or before a certain age. 50? No, no. Uh, Of course, I'm all the more uh, all the more reason to say that, given that 45 is approaching and 50 is only a short time away from that. But no, uh, this is what I want to do uh, for, uh, look, uh, uh, as long as I can, as long as the people of Dublin Central are willing to elect me. Uh, But I think, like, what I do and what I try to do is a craft in its own right. And God knows you get it wrong on so many occasions. But when you get it wrong, it has to kind of ignite you then to try and get it right on the other ones. And I find it really fulfilling.
0: In terms of the political leaders that you look to for inspiration uh, and that you can particularly signal, not necessarily Irish people, but people that you would particularly signal as being influential in your career, uh, even going on, as, as you will, who, who would you point out?
1: So if I would look outside of Ireland, who uh, uh, I think you were looking at there, if I look at people who are there now, uh, 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 Angela Merkel, uh, I think she has just been extraordinary uh, uh, because she has uh, had such a commitment to trying to steady Europe during difficult times, and she's an exor- enormous example of the 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 value of kind of of grace of keeping assets and then compromise at the right point. Uh, so she will be somebody who uh, who I've been very lucky to have met once as well, uh, and was so struck by her humility and the way she engaged with people. So she would be certainly a figure who I'd have enormous admiration for at the moment. Um, If I look a little bit further back, if I'd look in American politics, Lyndon Bain Johnson, LBJ, uh, because what I wouldn't go so far as to describe him as being a hero, he demonstrated to me the enormous complexity of what public and political life is all about the kind of relentless focus on trying to get agreement and trying to make things happen. Uh, the fact that politics does at times have kind of darker aspects to it and requires some some other kinds of energies and skills and whether people are willing to harness them to try to achieve a public good. And I think he's an enormous example of it. Uh, as you know, he made a decision that led to the expansion of voting rights all over um, uh, you know, within the so- uh, so- South America, within the southern states, he staked his political career on it. And when he did that, he knew what the consequences of that were going- likely to be for both the Democratic Party and for his own career, and he still went and did it. And he's an enormous... Um, he's somebody that I always reflect on in terms of what it means for the practice of politics today.
0: I'm really grateful that you were able to come and do this podcast It makes me think, though, because you have done other podcasts and you have done interviews that people might not necessarily expect that you would do, um, that perhaps you do have strong feelings on the concentration of media ownership in this country. We don't have that many independent publications or that much in the way of an independent press. There are, I think, at the moment, in terms of local newspapers around what 30 uh, family owned papers left in the country that aren't owned by a conglomerate what is your opinion on the concentration of media ownership
1: Uh, that uh, having a diverse and competitive and local uh, uh, media landscape is a essential foundation for a healthy liberal democracy Uh, and uh, that is the key reason why for example in my last budget I made changes and a very big change on the VAT rate Uh, I did not include that to a change on print media and the reason why I didn't in particular was of my concern for what the effect could have been on local newspapers Uh, and I think there's been research done that shows that the diminishment of local uh, news reporting and local coverage in, uh, in other democracies and other parts of the world has a really big effect on politics in that area. Where I'm more, more optimistic is if I look at the importance and role that local radio stations play. Uh, I think that gives me a lot of hope uh, and optimism for the future. But you're right to say I do go out of my way actually to both listen to and then try to support the development of ind- independent media like this. I think, for example, I must be the only Fine Gael politician ever that, for example, uh, uh, did an interview with The Village. Uh, because I thought uh, I want had to, you know, really wanted to put my case there. Um, I've gone through the trial that is hot press uh, because I read it for so long, um, and then you know, both podcasts like your own and others. Uh, not only do I, I, I listen to them and think they really matter. It's it's great, therefore, to try and help in whatever way I can, and uh, also try to get my points across about whether it be politics or anything else to listeners like your own. There's a need for reflection, Nadine at the moment and there's a need for words that are not shouted or spoken in haste and uh, maybe the new formats that are out there uh, are the way in which we're going to capture that we need to look at the tone in which we all talk to each other and the way in which we think it's acceptable to talk about things that we share Uh, and I think there's an appreciation of that now and we all have a role in public life to play a role in trying to change that now.
0: So this is a plea for a new seriousness?
1: I'm really serious about politics. I don't believe it's trivialised. I don't believe it should be trivialised. I don't believe it's a, a, something about celebrity. Uh, I don't believe that it is about how you can reduce something to 140 characters. I believe professional politics has left its craft down. Uh, as I've argued elsewhere before, the idea that when you're explaining you're losing has actually done such harm to the complexity of political life and to the complexity of decisions. It is a plight that politics alone is is, is politicians alone are not responsible for. It's a a shared thing regarding how we got to this point, but we are here now, Uh, and it is a, um, without getting too sombre about it all, politics is a deadly serious craft. And when you confuse it with celebrity, or if you confuse it with trivia, or if you confuse the complexity of modern life with a simple argument, it has consequences that really matter. And I think we know that here in Ireland actually, uh, uh, but it's something I now think is so serious.
0: In a previous podcast interview I did, I spoke to the author John Ronson and he quoted a line that was, nuance is the enemy of tyranny, which is I think what you're getting to here also, that we need to avoid caricatures or cartoons. Uh, and on that note uh before i ask one final question actually just looking to the future looking to the next few months um what are your hopes and what are your concerns
1: so i was listening to another podcast recently uh, no uh, i'm so sorry uh, in between listening to all of yours nadine of course um uh, uh over the summer period and it's been on my mind actually um uh, david tennant who, in addition to being a great Doctor Who and being brilliant in Broadchurch, is uh, has a podcast series, and uh, he interviews lots of other actors. There's a great interview with Jodie Whittaker on it, but the one that really struck a chord with me was the interview Gordon Brown, and there was a few things about the podcast that have stuck with me. The first thing is how happy Gordon Brown sounded, uh, despite all that was going on, and despite the difficulties he had in the latter part of public life. But at the end of the interview david tennant asks gordon brown uh, he says to him are we going to be okay and uh, gordon brown uh, goes on to say that he has never felt the united kingdom uh, is more divided than it is now and he explained why he believed that but he then went on to talk about why he's so optimistic And I more and more now, I'm experiencing people uh, kind of touching on that question because of what we can see happening beyond our shores at the moment and what we're trying to avoid happening on our own island. I'm hugely optimistic about where we can go. I'm hugely optimistic that we can get ourselves to the place that there's fewer tents on our streets and then none. I look at the way uh, those young boys and girls are going into primary school uh, this week and I look at what our primary schools and our secondary schools offer. I look at the creativity in our economy and I look at still the seriousness with which public life is treated here in Ireland and I look at the, the empathy, the value of community that I still think percolates through Ireland in a way that's nearly unique. So as I look at all that's happening at the moment. We will rise to it again, we will get through it again. The only question is how long it will take. And it's the job of people like me to try to shorten that period as much as possible and get us through this in a way that's orderly and fair, and we will. Uh, So uh, every day uh, my causes for optimism are renewed, while at the same time my appreciation of the challenges that we have get deeper. And we're going to marry the two Nadine and we'll work our way through it.
0: And you've got your birthday as well. A lot going on. I
1: have my birthday to look forward to as well,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, my birthday I...
1: for the last few years has coincided with the run-up to the budget. Uh, that has to say, it has a, a, it, it puts an old dampener on the birthday celebrations would be an understatement.
0: Minister Pascal Donahue, thank you so much for taking the time with me on My Roots Are Showing. As a final question, is there a track that you feel that sums you up that we could possibly play a little fragment from as our outro?
1: So, this track doesn't sum me up now, so uh, I have to be careful in in introducing it, but it is a a song uh, that I do listen to a lot by a band that I uh, really love, which is Elbow. Uh, I'm more of a fan of their early and middle stuff, Uh, but they released an album in 2002, 2003 called The Cast of Thousands, and on that album there's a gorgeous song called Fugitive Motel and uh, I'm not quite sure I know what it's about to tell the truth, and sometimes I listen to it, I think I know what it's about, then I think I'm wrong. But it's about somebody sitting in a hotel in the middle of a dust bowl uh, blowing a kiss to somebody on the other side of the world. And the chorus, which I hope you uh, uh, go on to play, is about how the two lovers or the two partners, or maybe their former lovers and former partners, talk to each other. Um, and I think it's sometimes really sad and sometimes really uh, joyful so I listen to that um, and uh, um, it's a track that I've listened to across the summer again Um, and then when I listen to that then I also listen to a more recent Elbow song which is Starlings which has these trumpets that erupt in the middle of us uh, which shows happier times do arrive
0: Thank you so much
1: Thank you Nadine, thanks a million
0: And my thanks once again to Minister Pascal Donahue, our first politician on the podcast, but hopefully not the last. By the way, always feel free to let me know who you would like to hear on the podcast. You can get in touch with me via social media, at Nadina Regan on Twitter and Instagram. And the show page for My Roots Are Showing is on Twitter, at My Roots Are Show. Also, as I mentioned earlier, this is an independent podcast created for love, so reviews and nice ratings are all hugely appreciated. And even if you're not the kind of person who writes recommendations online, you could even just tell a friend about the podcast. That would be really cool. Coming up soon, I'll be bringing you an interview with one of my favourite Irish female thinkers and writers. But until then, this is Nadine Regan signing off for another episode of My Roots Are Showing. Till the next time, do take care.